Good morning. It's good to see everybody here. Bring greetings from uh, the Reformed Baptist Church in Riverside, California, all the elders um, and uh, all the, the congregation. We pray for you and we love you and uh, we have uh, very like-minded churches and it's a blessing to look out and I was telling Pastor Wickham this to see so many new faces here and a lot of young families and kids. That's a real blessing. I was talking to some of the young folks and they're saying that we think like 10 are going to come to the youth conference and that's a very exciting um, in the early days of your church that we had a nice group and they've all gone off and gotten married now but it's so wonderful to see the lord raising up other young people who are interested in the things of the lord and want to gather together with other christians and i tell you it's all it's just so important my wife uh went to the youth conference in the very early days and it was a blessing to her and her walk and so um, it's just wonderful seeing our generation after, I think we're approaching the 23rd or 24th year of it now. So praise God for that. Um, we are going to, as Pastor Wickham said, be looking at the first, uh, few verses of first Peter chapter one. So you can turn your Bible and have it open there. And, uh, really this month have been struck by the resurrection. I know it might sound odd. Of course, Easter was earlier this month and, uh, and of course, every Lord's Day, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's, that's the beautiful thing. I, and I think that's why a lot of early reformers were uh, very anti-church calendar. You know, it wasn't like, oh, we're just going to strike down every sort of structure that exists here. They were looking at the scriptures, and they were moved by the reality that because Christ rose again on the first day, because the early church said, this is the Christian Sabbath. This is the day we will gather and worship. You see an emphasis on the resurrected Christ, and it's so, so important. And so um, even though we don't necessarily follow a Christian calendar, I do enjoy the idea of a Palm Sunday and then literally a, a each day tracking along with this is what Jesus is doing. Here he is entering a kingdom and everyone's crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. The king is here. And of course, we know most of them thought he was going to get rid of Rome. This is what this is the Messiah is for. And they completely missed his three years of teaching that he was coming to deal with the greatest tyrant of all, sin and death. Um, but nevertheless, there he is entering and they're, they're, they're singing his praises. And you track along each day him teaching in the temple, him meeting with the disciples. And then there's that final moment, that upper room moment there in, um, in Jerusalem, gathering together with all of his disciples. And um, it struck me this year as I was just meditating and thinking about Peter, how horrible that Thursday night must have been for him. You know, remember in the upper room, he's like, Lord, though all forsake you, I will never deny you. If there were never more bold words spoken, yet such foolish words spoken, there they are right there. And, and Jesus, a lot of times we can read this that Jesus is like, you know, oh yeah, well, tonight you're going to deny me three times. No, I really believe it is the grace of Christ that he says, Peter, you say this, but I'm telling you right now, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And that must have been like, 
perhaps even worse than when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> when we're going to get to that in a moment here, when Jesus or Peter so boldly shares some great truth, and then he says, may it never be, Lord, and gets you know, rebuked by the Lord. But nevertheless, that night, Peter fell into probably the, the darkest moment of his life, the most depressing moment of his life, perhaps even most um, life-forsaking moment. Because here, there he is denying the very Lord he said he would die for, the very Lord he said, though all would forsake you, I never will. And so as I was thinking about Peter there on that Thursday night and how horrific it was, and yet you see the Peter in Acts and you read the Peter who writes these words that we read just a moment ago together, and it's a different Peter. There's something that happened to him. And I'm convinced because the New Testament convinces us of this truth. It is because he met the risen Christ. The resurrected Christ is the, if you will, the, the, the crucible, the, the, the watershed moment in all of humanity. And it transforms people. For the last 2,000 years, it has transformed people. It has transformed societies. That is how much power is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I just want to, for a little bit, if you would indulge me, look at the life of Peter, and then we're going to look at these words here. Because Peter literally has just said um, in verse 8, sorry, not verse 8, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In what, Peter? How do we rejoice when we experience the trials of this life? How do we ex experience joy when life is so full of sorrow? And Peter is basically saying, I want you to remember the ramifications of the resurrection and the joy that it brings, even in the worst of times. And so that's where we're going to head. But let's just think about Peter in general. Really, the first time that we see Peter... Um, in the Gospel of John, we know that Andrew invites Peter, Andrew, you know, Peter's brother, come and see. We've met the Messiah. But the real story that we see, uh, Luke records it for us in chapter 5, where Jesus is actually out ministering along the lake. Uh, and there's some fishermen there in their boats. Uh, he happens, happens, we say this of our sovereign Lord, but he happens to pick a boat and it's Peter's boat and says, hey, can I be on this boat? I need to speak to the people on the shore. Do you mind if I push out a little bit? Probably the crowds are pressing in. We also know that there's this unique physics where if you're standing on, uh, near water, your voice can be projected even more. And so there he is on Peter's boat. Jesus is preaching. And afterwards, Peter's, uh, uh, sorry, Jesus says to Peter, hey, uh, why don't you guys push out a little ways and fish and, 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 and go, go fishing. Push out deeper and cast your nets down. Now, Jesus knew they'd been fishing all night. And, but Peter has to say, hey, you know, appreciate it, but we've been fishing all night. We haven't caught a thing. There's no fish out here. I'm the fisherman here. I know these things. But Jesus says, no, Please go do it. And, and Peter obeys. It's kind of interesting. He doesn't really know him, but he does. Perhaps he knows who he is. But he goes out, and, and Peter is absolutely flabbergasted with what happens here. 
The, the nets are so full that the boats are starting to sink. Other boats have to come in to get all these fish. And, and what is Peter's response? Peter is shocked. He falls on his knees and he's like, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But Jesus reassures Peter. He's like, Peter, you know, you're a fisher of fish right now, but I'm going to make you a fisher of men. And he calls Peter. He is one of the chosen to follow him. And no longer would Peter just be about catching fish. He was going to be about God's great work, God's great work of redemption uh, in the world. In fact, um, we see uh, another great moment where the Lord uses Peter to really speak some profound words. Uh, if, if you uh, remember in John chapter 6, uh, the feeding of what we say the 5,000, we know that there were many, many more if you count the women and the children and so forth. But there they were. They, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. It's the next day Jesus had gotten away to the other side of the lake, and um, the crowds found him again. And they're all pressing in, and they're all like, give us some bread, Jesus. And Jesus begins to teach, listen, I, I know you find this amazing that I can manifest bread out of just a couple of loaves. And I, I know you're hungry and I can, feed, I can feed you physically, but I'm here to do something far greater. I'm here to actually help you with your greatest spiritual hunger, for I am the bread of life and whoever eats of me will never hunger again. And, and Jesus is preaching these things and the crowds are like, hold on now, you're a human being, you're not bread, but you're saying you need to eat me. It shows you how carnally minded they were that they instantly went to, is he talking about cannibalism here? What's going on here? This guy's weird. And, and literally the Bible says that the crowds that had been following him, you know, they've been seeing all these great miracles. They've been hearing and preach these great words that the kingdom of God is coming. And yet when he says, listen, what you need most is me. What you have to deal with is your spiritual hunger. And I'm the only one who can feed you. You have to partake of me. They're like, uh, we're out of here. And the crowd's go away. In my mind, I almost see like a Clint Eastwood movie where it's like the crowds are gone. The wind is just tumbleweeds are blowing along. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he's like, well, everyone's left. Are you guys going to leave me? What did Peter say? All these great sweet words. Lord, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter by God's grace, knew there was something great about Jesus, knew there was something far more valuable than just eating that bread. And I bet you that bread was pretty good. Miracle bread probably tasted great. The best sourdough he could ever have, perhaps. But nevertheless, the Lord used Peter to proclaim words that I myself have said to the Lord when I have felt forsaken, when I have felt just lost and on the edge. It's like, where else can I go, Lord? I know you have the words of eternal life. I know you are the source of, of the, the only source of my hope. And so there's Peter proclaiming great truth. The Lord used Peter in many wonderful ways. But we also see Peter is just a man. 
And this is what we need to remind everybody who tries to even build a church upon him. He's still a man. And remember that moment in uh, Matthew chapter 14, the disciples are out on the lake and, and then Jesus is walking towards them. And my goodness, once again, very carnally minded. Oh, what is it? I mean, literally the Bible says they said, it's a ghost. I mean, I don't even know if today, if I saw something strange, my first thought would be, oh, it's a ghost. Uh, but they're like, it's a ghost. And then Jesus very kindly is like, hey guys, no, no, it's me. It's me, Jesus. And remember the, this moment. So this shows you the, the, the moment that, where Peter, or it's a moment where Peter really understands who Jesus is, and at the same time, he really doesn't. Jesus, uh, Peter goes, hey, Lord, if you would, I, I'll, come, I'll come to you. And Jesus is like, come to me. And Peter's like, yeah. And man, he's bolting out on the, I mean, he didn't even think. That's how impulsive Peter is, and that's why I like him, because that's who I am by nature, impulsive. And I'm, yeah. And he's walking in the water, and it's, I don't know how many steps he got, but he, he got a ways from the boat to, then all of a sudden the Bible says that he's like, he starts looking around and he realizes what he's doing. The Bible literally says that he said, uh, or that he saw the wind around him. And I'm sure that also means that he saw the waves. And I'm sure he went, oh no, <laughs> what am I doing? Though the Bible doesn't give us this narrative, I am convinced what happened is he took his eyes off Jesus. He's running to Jesus. He's like, this is fantastic. And then he goes, oh my goodness, what is happening here? There's wind, there's waves. Humans can't walk on water. And believe me, many, many summers I have tried as a boy to walk on water. I mean, it's, if you grow up in the Christian faith, I'm sure there are many young men here, maybe some ladies, but we tried it. Okay, maybe if I get real fast, I can get like a couple steps on it. And man, you're bolting and da, 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 da. It, there's just no way to physically walk on water as a human being. And so Peter begins to sink. Terror comes over him. And what does he do? Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches his hand out. He pulls him out of the water, walks him to the boat, and they both get back into the boat. Of course, Jesus heard Peter's words. Of course, uh, Jesus was there to, to help him out of that water. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt me? Peter had many highs and lows like this, didn't he? Of course, I think one of the, the greatest ones that I just referenced a moment ago is in Matthew chapter 16, where they're in Caesarea Philippi. Uh, I, I work for a Christian radio program, and my boss was there a few years ago, and uh, a friend of mine w was with him and, and shot some video. And where they believed Jesus was was in this area that um, um, has a, a kind of a natural spring and creek coming out of the rocks, and there's a great grotto, kind of a cave. And they believe... Well, they know that this is where the Greeks worshiped the god of Pan. And, and so when Jesus says, you know, uh, I will build my kingdom, but the gates of hell will not prevail, he's, they believe he's literally referencing these grottos that were for pagan gods. And they're saying, even these gates of hell will not prevail against the kingdom of God. But nevertheless, there they are in Caesarea Philippi. And, and Jesus just asks him, hey, you know, people are talking. What are they saying about me? And, you know, some of the disciples say, um, well, some of them, you know, believe that you are Elijah and others are saying that you're, you are a prophet. And then um, what did Peter say? Peter just said, 
you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, how blessed you are. This didn't come from you, Peter. This is something that my heavenly father has revealed to you. This is so precious that you know this and that you can claim this. And so Jesus begins to teach what he's here to do. I mean, word by word, I'm here to die, but I will rise again on the third day. And Peter's like, (laughs) you know, God reveals things to me, God, or Jesus. Um, And so that's never going to happen on my watch. No way. No way. I'm not going to let you die. And, of course, the great rebuke. It's not like, shut up, Peter. You're not getting it, Peter. It's, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) If anybody ever said that to you, you would just be dropped, right? Like, I'm not Satan. But Jesus rebukes him because Peter, once again, is missing the point. Jesus calls him a great hindrance because of this. And it shows, really, once again, Peter's humanity, his weakness, his inability at times to see the big picture of what Christ was there to do. And what an insight it is for us, from the Lord, for Peter, uh, to remind us even today here, he simply did not understand what Christ's purpose was. He was looking at it from a human perspective. And so, This perspective of Peter really comes to play, as I said, uh, in that Last Supper, as we call it. Though Jesus had taught his disciples many times why he was there, that he must die for their sins, uh, that he must suffer, that he must be crucified. Oh, but he will rise again on the third day. Did they just not hear that? They didn't. They honestly didn't get it. And so there they are in that upper room and Jesus is washing their feet as they they arrive for the the meal. And Peter once again shows his very kind of pietistic ways. Oh Lord, (laughs) no, 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 you can't wash my feet. You're, You're far greater than me. It was very pious. You're too holy, Lord. I'm far too humble for you to wash my feet. Do you see how the ludicrousness in that statement I see these things. Oh, I won't let you dishonor yourself, Lord. And Jesus is like, listen, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So Peter, in his impulsiveness, well, then, Lord, not just my feet, all of me. Wash all of me. Give me a bath right now. And it just shows his instability. He's all over the place at times. And, of course, as I said, Peter makes that bold statement that night. Though all fall away I won't. Uh, I will die for you. And of course, Jesus reveals the reality, the tragic reality, that that night, Peter would deny him three times. And as I said, imagine how horrific it must have been. It doesn't seem the Bible gives us insight that on the first denial or on the second denial that Peter's like... (gasps) You know, it's kind of like some of those movies where, you know, you get three wishes and, you know, the first couple you don't realize it. And by the third one, you're, oh, I forgot to get this wish right. You know, he literally doesn't see it. But the Bible says literally on that third one, he's struck. He hears the words of Christ in his own head. He realizes what he has done. 
What a horrible night that must have been. I cannot imagine how horrible it was. Honestly, the closest that I can come emotionally to it is the day that my own dad died about seven years ago, seven and a half years ago. The, the grief. And sometimes grief, I know most of us here in one way or the other have experienced, it can be almost suffocating. It's like the air has been sucked out of the room and you're just, you can't even breathe. You're grieving so much. Surely that is where Peter is because the Bible says that he was weeping, that he wept. Oh, Peter, how suffocating that isolation must have felt. How crushing the regret must have been. How deep his suffering must have felt, realizing he had sinned against his very Lord. The Lord who he just hours before had said, I'll die for you, Lord. If our story ended right there, brothers and sisters, we would not be here right now. I guarantee you that. The reason why I drive us to this moment of despair is because I want us to see the reality of the resurrection. Because this is where Peter was. And there is no way this broken, regretful, sorrowful man would have just a few weeks later been boldly standing in front of Jerusalem saying, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. The Lord that you killed is alive and he's calling all to repentance in his name. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be washed in his blood. There is hope today. There is no way this man would have just scurried away like a little cockroach into the, 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 the crevices of Jerusalem and then quickly snucked out back to Galilee. He perhaps would have sat on his boat. Just what happened? What happened? We know this because those two disciples on the road of Emmaus were leaving. And they're like, I can't believe what happened. I can't believe it. It's as if none of them heard Jesus say, I will rise again on the third day. He even gave them a picture as he looked at uh, the temple and said, that temple's going to be knocked down. But if you tear down this temple, it'll rise again on the third day. How in the world did Peter become the bold Peter that we know? The Peter who wrote these great words we're going to look at in a moment the Peter who did boldly proclaim the gospel on the day of Pentecost, the Peter who healed a lame beggar in the name of not just Jesus, in the name of the risen Christ. The Peter who went to the temple, he's sharing the gospel there, and they call him, they call him before the Sanhedrin. They threaten him. Don't do this. You cannot preach in the name of Jesus. And what does Peter say? Peter and John. Hey, listen, judge, judge what you'd like, you know, if, but we know what we have to do. God has called us to do this. And so judge it how you will. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And that includes having seen the risen Christ on multiple times. What happened 
Well, I've already given away the answer. And you already know the answer. He saw the risen Christ on multiple times in the upper room. Uh, there, there are other occasions where Jesus just appears to them and talks to them. And then there is that wonderful, that hopeful, that redemptive moment when Christ is on the shore making breakfast. The disciples are out fishing. It's the morning. And Peter comes in, and Jesus and him have a conversation. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord. You know I do. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Three denials, three questions. Resurrection, restoration. Jesus calls Peter back into the ministry. Grace upon grace. And so as we are looking at 1 Peter, we see how this apostle... Decades later, this is an old man Peter writing. Decades later, is still seeking to fulfill the calling of Christ on that very beach in Galilee. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Tend to my sheep, Jesus even said. Peter's writing to a group of Christians in northern, what we would call northern Turkey, northern Asia Minor. Most don't even believe Peter got there. Perhaps he did, and it's just not been recorded for us. But somehow he got wind that they were suffering, that they were going through various trials, as Peter says in the ESV. And Peter decides, I need to write a letter to these people. I need to encourage them. And instead of avoiding suffering, because if you look back at Peter's record, that's really what he's avoiding. Jesus saying, I'm going to, Die. No, 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 no. You don't have to die, Lord. You know, um, you know G Peter seems to be quick to avoid those sort of uh, human experiences of suffering. Instead of looking at life through the human eyes that he saw many things through in the gospel, Peter is encouraging these saints to look to the big picture. There's something greater than your trials right now. Peter's not saying, I'm not going to be empathetic with you or sympathetic with you. Peter has experienced great trials, great suffering. But chapter one here, Peter says, in light of, in verse three, where Peter is saying, blessed be God and our father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. These are Peter's opening words here. Let me remind you, dear saints, that you yourself have experienced the resurrection. He says a little later, though you've not seen it, you still believe it. And why would a Christian who's never met the physical resurrection of Jesus, or the resurrected Christ believe? Well, it's because our dead hearts have experienced resurrection. 
Paul teaches there at the very beginning of Ephesians chapter 1. You were dead in your trespasses. That's what Isaiah says too. You're dead in your sins. But each one of us here who is a Christian and each one of the Christians here in northern Asia Minor, they had a moment where they were once dead. They only saw things through their human eyes. They only dealt with things in their human ways. And then Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrected their hearts. And I know, what you, I know those of you who are Christians here this morning, this morning know this. Because at one point, you didn't care. Or at one point, you were a great Pharisee. And you thought you were doing great things. But one day in God's mercy, the Holy Spirit said, listen, you are a miserable sinner and lost. You deserve God's wrath. And that crushed you the way the law should crush us. But in the same moment, and we can't really put it into words, the Bible explains it. And, and, but somehow you also saw Christ. We use that metaphorically. But you knew the resurrected Christ was alive, that he had lived, that he had died and bled for your sins, and that he was alive. And how do you put that into words? Some of us, it was hard for us to put it into words. Some of us, it happened over a season. We went from agnostic or atheistic or pharisaical or just blasé or outright rebellion, whatever state the Lord found you in. And some of us, it's like this. And some of us, it's over a season. And yet we look back and go, man, I once did not care. In fact, I hated God, if I could be perfectly honest, because I enjoyed being the Lord of my life. But then resurrection happened. Because I was dead over there. But I am alive now. And I feel what Peter said to be so true. Where else can I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. You are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And I find great hope in this truth. And that's what Peter's saying here. Praise be to our great God of our Lord Jesus Christ, because according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable. And that's why he says in verse 6, in this rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He's not condescending. He knows what grief is, but he's saying, listen, in your suffering, I want you to remember the gospel. I want you to remember that Christ is living, that Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. And he's not telling them to be sadomasochists. He's not saying, isn't suffering great? None of us here would confess that. Some of us would say, Lord, I'm thankful that you allowed me to suffer because I grew closer to you, like our sister Johnny Erickson Tata, I, I have heard her say, I would not trade a day to be able to walk with my own legs. 
for the lifetime of suffering that I've experienced. She's a quadriplegic, for those of you who don't know, because of the closeness of the Lord in her suffering. So she's, you know, for all of eternity, she's not going to say, Lord, just leave me in the wheelchair. I'm fine. No, she's, she's looking forward to the resurrection, to the, the redeemed body, the glorified body. But she wouldn't trade it for a day right now if she were to have to give up the closeness that she has with the Lord. And in many ways, that's what Peter is saying here. He's looking back at the living hope that we have and the resurrected Christ. Our election, our salvation, our redemption, our regeneration, our living hope is founded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says this, doesn't he? In that great chapter on the, the resurrection of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In fact, Paul says it in a negative way. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still lost in your sins. Wow. That's how serious Paul took the resurrection, a physical resurrection that the ancient world scoffed at. No one taught that. Some may have taught that you would exist in some sort of spiritual manner. We know that the Gnostics believed this, that all of the flesh, all of the material world was horrible and created by some pseudo God and that our goal is to escape but I tell you what I was greatly encouraged in my growth and understanding of the Lord and and his plan for redemption his plan for redemption of this world brothers and sisters we are not going to be sitting on clouds playing harps in some weird spiritual quasi you know cartoon we're going to be here <laughs> and it's going to be better than we can possibly imagine because there's no sin and no sorrow and no suffering you think of all those moments that you've hiked up in those Sierras there, which are so beautiful with the snow-capped peaks. Those Tuolumne Meadow moments, as I like to call them, where you're just like, Lord, I don't know if it can get any more beautiful. The Lord was so kind, and my family and I were able to go to Hawaii this past August. And it's the same sort of experience. There's moments when you're like, I don't know if it can get any better than this in this lifetime. It is so beautiful and my, all of my senses are, are just exploding. <laughs> I don't know how to capture it. You know, I, we look back at the photos and we're like, oh, it was, it was way better than that. It wasn't even close to what this photo is showing. But the redeemed world, the world that Christ promises at the end of Revelation, I am coming. Behold, I am coming. And I will make all things new will be beyond our comprehension. Because even though now the world has fallen, we see still you cannot keep God's glory out. For he created it good. And his glory is still there. Though fallen. So. So we rejoice even though now we suffer. And our rejoicing is looking back that Christ is risen and alive and seated at the right hand of his father and that also our future is guarded by the lord it is sure all those who are in christ jesus that resurrection that final resurrection and and, and being able to live with him in his presence as revelation explains to us in that new world where there is no more crying and, and no more suffering no more sin 
All of that is being kept and preserved for us. Brothers and sisters, the reality is that um, in this world we will experience suffering. We've all gone through hard times. But as the King James Version would put it, we are kept by the power of God through faith. Suffering and trials are real. The power of God's Spirit gives us faith to endure. Though sometimes we may feel pretty weak. Our hope our salvation, the coming of Christ, and what he will do with us is all being preserved by faith alone. And it's not even our own faith. It's the faith that God has given us to trust and believe that this is the case. We not only look back and look forward, we also look forward. Peter says, this is our inheritance. I like how Paul described it in Romans chapter 8. If you want to, you can turn there real quickly, just looking at verses 16 through 18, about how the Spirit ministers this to us, even in hard times. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See what Paul is saying there? I know your suffering is real. I mean, Paul's the one who writes in 2 Corinthians that in all of his suffering for the gospel, there were moments where he even despaired of life itself. Now, he's not saying I'm suicidal, but he's saying, I, I, I was at the point of like, Lord, I don't know much, how much longer I can take this. Please just take me home. And we've all felt that at times, right? That, Lord, this is just so heavy. I'd rather just be with you than have to deal with it. And Paul is reminding us, of course, Peter is as well, that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. They're reminding these dear, precious children of God, they're reminding us today that we have much to rejoice over. Far more than at times we even allow ourselves to remember. And this comes back to that concept of we need to keep preaching the gospel to ourselves. Remember, both Peter and Paul spent time in jail. They were whipped, they were put in prisons, they were cursed at. They really did suffer. But we see the joy of the Lord abounding in their lives. I always think of Paul with Silas there in the Philippian jail, singing hymns to the Lord late at night. They didn't know the Lord was going to send an earthquake to free them and 
that the jailer would put his faith in Christ and that they'd be on their way sharing the gospel. For all they knew, the next morning, their heads could have been chopped off. But in that deep, dark dungeon, there they were singing hymns to the Lord. The joy of the resurrection of Christ was greater than their momentary suffering. And this is what Peter wants these dear Christians to remember. This is why he's writing them, to remind them that, yeah, Rome may persecute you. Sure, your next door neighbors may turn on you. One moment they're friendly, they're handing sourdough bread to you and enjoying, you know, being neighborly. And then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, you guys are weird. Perhaps some of them are facing just the consequences of the fallen world disease and lack of food, bad weather. All of these can be lumped into the various trials. Even, Peter would say, sinful choices. Because Peter himself suffered consequences for his sinful choices. But in all of this, Peter is saying, remember to look back to the, the resurrection of Christ and to rejoice. Dear brothers and sisters, I needed to be reminded of this truth in my own life. There are various trials that I have experienced just this month alone that have been heavy. It's my desire to encourage you to daily rejoice in the resurrection. It is not just a springtime celebration. It is every Lord's day, and it is every day of our lives when we leave this building. We must keep looking to Jesus. And even when we're like Peter, and we are like, wow, I'm so focused, I'm so zeroed in, this is so glorious, I'm so full of joy, thank you, Lord. And then that moment comes out of nowhere that we're like, whoa, there's wind and waves. And ah! Peter does give us a good example even in his moment of sorrow, and even in his moment of doubt, what did he do? He instantly, the moment that he knew he was in trouble, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. And I really want to encourage you with that. I think we are so Western at times in our thinking, so American in our going about our daily lives that we're convinced we can fix it first. I don't want to bother you, Lord. Let me deal with it. That is not the example of Scripture. Take it to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Whether you're struggling with doubt or whether you're struggling with fear, whether anxiety is there, whether it's the night watches of the night and you just cannot sleep, Facebook is not going to make you better. And I've fallen into that. I can't sleep and... I'll just scroll through and see what my friends are doing. Ten minutes later, you're just like, ugh. I need Jesus. I don't need Facebook. Facebook is the, the bread, if you will, the physical bread. But Christ is the living bread. And you will not hunger. When you fail to look to Jesus, when you feel like the trials of life are overwhelming, when you flat out give in to sin, do what Peter did. 
there is still hope. Turn your eyes to Jesus. This is what the repentant life looks like. This is the Christian life. There have been a lot of false teachings over the last 2,000 years, and many of them have to do with the old bootstrap Christianity. The old, I can be victorious. I can do this on my own, Lord. Thank you for helping me, and I'll be along my way now. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible is teaching an utter dependency, a daily dependency upon Christ. And the trials that you and I face are teaching us. Ever stopped in the midst of a great trial and think, and, and you've probably all said, I've said it too, Lord, why? Why do I have to go through this? What the Bible keeps teaching us over and over and again is to go, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you every hour. Come by my side. Help me to endure this well, whatever it might be. Help me to do it to your glory, whatever it is that we're facing. Lord, teach me all the more to depend upon you. That's something my wife and I were just talking about a couple nights ago with a dear friend. We can sometimes feel pummeled, right? You ever been in the ocean and there's a series of waves coming out of nowhere? I love swimming in the ocean. There's, you kind of get knocked off, and then you, the second you get backed up, another wave comes. You're like, oh, my goodness, that was crazy. And bam, out of you're just like, what has happened here? That can be what life feels like. And the older that I grow and walk with the Lord, I realize those are not accidents. Because like that song we sung a moment ago, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. I am a fool like Peter. I'm a fool saved by grace, but I'm a fool like Peter, and I cannot tell you how quickly I think I've got it figured out. And then something comes up, a relationship issue or a loved one dies, or like for us earlier this month, a cat dies, <laughs> eaten by a coyote. And you just feel overwhelmed. But I'm telling you, it is so good because it pushes me to my knees. And I think, oh, Lord, I don't, I don't want to leave this because in a few weeks when I'm feeling better and I'm through this trial, I know I'm going to read my Bible less. I know I'm going to pray less. And I don't want to go there. You have the words of eternal life. You are the living bread. I want to feast on you. Why do I always slip back into this, I got it figured out? The trials that Peter went through, the trials that you and I face, are teaching us to depend upon the Lord. In fact, they are proving that our faith is real. That's what Peter later writes. Of course, not every trial is due to sin. We live in a fallen world. There is a very real devil. We have a very real flesh that is at war within us. But ultimately, the Lord allows all of these trials. In fact, can I even say confessionally as a Reformed Baptist, it's not just allows. The Lord decrees these things. 
And that should, dear brother and sister, maybe you're new to Reformed ideas. We just sang a song there that I sometimes have trouble singing. Whatever my God ordains is right. Have you ever stopped as you're singing that and thought, do I really mean that? Because I don't sometimes. Sometimes I say, oh, Lord, surely you didn't mean for this to happen. But the confident Christian who's not confident in themselves but is confident in the risen Christ is able to sing, whatever my God ordains is right. Whatever I experience in this lifetime, I know that you have orchestrated it and that you are using it for your good. That's where, where Paul goes to. We read there from Romans 8. He continues and says that all things work together for good for those called according to his purpose, all for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. And then he goes on and lists all sorts of things, famine and death and nakedness and principalities and demons and all these sort of things. What can separate us from the love of Christ? What's Paul's conclusion, brothers and sisters? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. All of those things, all of those various trials are actually for your good. And so that's where Peter can say, in these things, think about this. In these trials, remember this. Remember, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And brothers and sisters, I'll wrap with this idea. Jesus himself told the disciples, you know, you believe in me because you've seen me. But what does he say in John 20? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. We live in a very special class of Christianity, of called Christians. Because though we've not been like Paul or Peter and seen the risen Christ, we still believe by faith alone. We are still trusting because he has done the great work of new birth in our lives. This is the gift of God. And we are in that very blessed, privileged time. But guess what? One day we will see him face to face. And the joy that we will experience, the joy, the utter bliss will not be worth every tear that you could collect if you could collect them. Psalms talk about like a bottle that can collect your tears. Be encouraged by this truth. Be encouraged by the good news of Jesus Christ. Be encouraged by looking to the transforming power of the risen Christ in your life. And if you don't know this power... It's okay to confess that. Please stop living like a Pharisee. That's someone who puts on their own self-righteousness and they say they got it all together. Please take that off. Rip it off like Eustace did those dragon scales in the voyage of Don Treader. If you don't know what I'm talking about, read the Chronicles of Narnia. Eustace is a self-centered, self-pleasing young boy. And he does everything for himself and ultimately ends up being turned into a dragon. And he's so remorseful. He's so isolated from everything. And Aslan, the Christ figure, comes to him. 
and he redeems him. And with his lion claws, rips off those dragon scales, those ugly dragon scales, those beastly dragon scales. And Lewis writes in a way that I think Lewis is reflecting upon his own conversion to Christ. That at the same moment, it hurt more than he could even explain. And yet the relief was greater than he had ever experienced. And in some ways, that is, if you don't know Christ, and yet you're dealing with the crush of the law, and yet the joy of Christ, that is, your dragon scales are being ripped off. They're being torn off your eyes, and it hurts. And yet, at the same moment, there is great relief. There is great rejoicing, because Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is transforming you. And I pray, especially young people, I pray today is the day that those dragon scales are ripped off and that you can rejoice in the risen Christ, that you can experience the new birth that only the Holy Spirit can do. And don't get stuck in, you know, sometimes because you were raised reformed and you, 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 you hear that God has his elect, sometimes you can get stuck in your head and like, I guess I'm not elect. Jesus said, today is the day of salvation. If you hear my words, repent, come to me, put your trust in me. Now we know it's a spirit drawing, it's the Father's will, it's through the power of Christ's work on the cross, but Jesus constantly called people openly and publicly and said, come unto me, all of you who are weary, heavy laden with your sin. I'm adding that in there, but that is what he means. And I will give you rest. Come to Jesus today. Don't delay. You do not know if there is a tomorrow. But we do know that Christ calls sinners. Christ loves to save sinners. Christ bled and died for sinners. And all of us in this room are sinners. But some of us, have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And we rejoice even in suffering because we're not any better than our Savior who did suffer much. He was known as the man of sorrows. And yet he did so. Hebrews 12 says that he did so with the joy set before him. And that joy is us. I know that sounds weird, but the Bible talks about Christ singing over his bride the way a groom sings when he is just first married. And that is joyful, that is triumphant. And so come join us, us broken and weary people who also are rejoicing. Those of us who are, 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 are full of joy and yet full of sorrow because of this world. Where else will you go? There is no other place to go but to come to Jesus the risen Jesus, the Jesus who is alive right now and is coming again. For some, he will come and the joy will be greater than they will ever have experienced. That's our hope as Christians. But for the others, when he comes, there will be deep anguish because all will confess him as Lord. Only some will rejoice in that truth. So come to Jesus. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your mercy and your grace. Even as you, through your Holy Spirit, inspired our brother Peter to write these great words that it is your mercy that we see in Christ. We deserve nothing but your judgment, nothing but your wrath, and yet you sent your only Son so that all who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Reborn life, recreated life, new creation life through the very alive Jesus Christ. So we pray, Lord, minister to my brothers and sisters here. I know we have all gone through trials even this month. But Lord, help them to remember and rejoice. Because we proclaim that Christ died, that Christ rose again, and Christ is coming again. And Lord, those here who do not have faith, would it not be today, on this blessed final Lord's Day of April, that you ripped off their dragon scales and gave them eyes to see and a new heart to believe and a new birth in Christ, Lord. Lord, give them faith to repent of their sins and to trust that Jesus did it all and all to him we owe. We pray this in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen.